Side Broadcast, the best Vox casting either side of the breach. six weeks after the event. Akirio shredded the death marshal from the inside out. Karai watched impassively as its fingers burst through his belly and ripped him open from sternum to groin. They will never leave you alone, Akirio said, sweeping from the ruin of the man's body and advancing on his companion. The remaining death marshal backed up, but his escape was blocked by the massive paddle of the riverboat, thundering behind him in a cloud of spray. Shots whipped through Akirio's body, narrowly missing Karai herself. They will hunt you. They will never stop. But we can make them fear. Akirio reared like a serpent and lashed forward, disappearing into the death marshal's chest. He staggered, clutching at his chest, then his throat, and then his head. He opened his mouth to scream. We can make them fear us, came the voice of Akirio from the man's throat. Wide-eyed, the man turned awkwardly to face the huge wooden blades of the paddle roaring past, inches from his face. His hat, caught by the blade, spun away as if shot. The man brought his arms up in front, out of Karai's sight. His body shook violently. Then he raised his arms to either side. Blood jetted from the ragged stumps where the paddle wheel had sheared off much just below his elbows. We can make them feel such terror. Then the man thrust his head forward and the spray turned red. His body was pulled from the riverboat deck by the wheel then smashed into the machinery below. Akirio flew up to whirl around Karai. 
All around her, the riverboat was in uproar as her spirits battled the death marshals. Again and again, Karai had sent out a curio to rend and tear, to carve bloody vengeance in the flesh of the living who persecuted her so. It hurt to unleash a curio and savour her vengeance, but... It is not enough. No, whispered Karai. The Garki howled in unending hunger as the screaming throngs of passengers disrupted the efforts of the remaining death marshals. I swore I would not let this happen again. It is the only way. Many will escape our judgment if you do not. You killed the innocent. Ever since the purple wave had struck, Karai had found new ways to loose the bonds on Akirio, and more and more Akirio demanded they be loosed. The blood spilled could never fill the void in Karai, but... I cannot let you do it. You want this. No, whispered Karai. But she knew it was a lie the moment it left her lips. Very well. Just as once, and just a guild. Not the innocents like last time. Ikirio smiled, and Karai reached out to her, reached within herself. Ikirio swirled around her, and Karai's form tore into ribbons of smoke, joining with her spirit self. In moments, a monstrous spirit with claws like swords reared above the blood-soaked planks of the doomed passenger ship. We're not so many as last time, said Karai, and loosed the blood-chilling scream. Mukmorning, Avatar of Athanasia. Mukmorning's secret laboratory, moments after the event. The event changed everything for Douglas McMorning. The cacophony of strange voices, speaking in a multitude of languages at once, formed strange dreamlike images in his mind. McMorning was more accustomed to hearing voices in his mind than others, and he knew better than to resist the urges they encouraged in him. He was used to it. Others found the event wrought with an agonizing and blinding headache. For him, however, it was a moment of revelation. Spending his life in an endless quest to defy the natural processes of death, to stave off the inevitable demise of life, his experimentations had gone beyond anything anyone had ever imagined possible. But he could never overcome the essential missing ingredient that gave his experiments purpose. Not until he gave himself to the voices. When the purple wave had passed, and the crackling energy ceased its static snapping, he slowly shook off the stupor that enveloped him, and faced the large behemoth of a man he had created. He realized, sadly, it was just a construct of flesh like the many others he'd created before. McMorning stepped close to the monster. Step forward, he commanded. It did not move. He scowled. Did the event burn it out, he wondered. It was shambling and groaning stupidly just moments before. A disappointing development given the hopes he had for this construct. He and Sebastian had gone to great lengths and expense, even hiring that dullard Mortimer to assist in exhuming the late Captain Gideon to procure his brain. He scratched the side of his pointed nose and ran the gloved fingers of his blood-soaked hands through his long and disheveled hair. Well, damn, he cursed. Of all the luck. The minute you have an epiphany is the minute some setback occurs. Fate hates me, he surmised, already considering an alternative brain. 
Perhaps I'd ask Francisco Ortega would be a better donor. If not Francisco's, he would love to get his hands on the judge's cerebrum. But his true revelation was that his entire plan was flawed. Where he and the other resurrectionists tried so hard to recreate life, he realized suddenly that the answer lay in a different path altogether. He had a plan to create a vessel of great proportion that could contain his will. Rather than recreate life, the voices told him a way to eternally extend life. A truly independent construct would not be necessary. Instead, one that McMorning could inhabit once his current body failed him, perpetuating his life indefinitely, well, that would be a creature to be reckoned with. The problem, he realized, concentrating on the failure of the experiment, was not the brain. The problem was the body. The voices whispered to him once again, and he cocked his head to one side, listening. This one was simply not, well, grand enough to chamber the etheric energy, they explained. He would need more body parts. Many more body parts. Thank you, he said to the empty room. Something that will quake the ground with each step is needed, you're right, of course. Something that will stand all manner of abuses. Right then. Simulacrum 28 is a failure. On with Simulacrum 29. His smile broadened, and his eyes darted back and forth, in eager anticipation to begin. Seamus, Avatar of Dread. An anonymous alley, four months after the event. A woman's scream pierced the night's silence. Seamus chuckled. He liked it when they screamed. Gave him a bit of a thrill. This one had magnificent lungs. He was sure her cry had carried for blocks. Giving the sleepers who heard it a good scare. Maybe even stopped a heart or two. Come on, love. He cooed to her as she backed deeper into the alley his body blocking her only exit. It won't hurt. Much. The woman's foot caught the hem of her dress as she retreated, spilling her onto the slick cobblestones. Her eyes searched for an escape, some sort of egress from the predicament she found herself in. Seamus wondered how any woman who plied her trade under the gas lamps could be as soft and weak as she was. It was pathetic. But, he decided, as her chest swelled impressively for another scream, she would make an excellent bell. That would toughen her up a bit. Footsteps scraped behind him, and suddenly the alley mouth was filled with shadows. Halt, fiend! And here comes the cavalry. James winked at the woman who had gathered her wits and petticoats and stood up, brushing an errant strand of hair out of her face. You're under arrest, monster, she growled fishing a constable's badge out of the dress's many folds. Ah, Lloyd Vate, I see. Well done. He shifted the knife in his hand and broke into a slow, exaggerated clap. I guess it's time to let the tiger out of the cage, then. Here, hold this. The woman's smug grin turned into a little O of surprise as Seamus lunged forward suddenly, burying the knife in her stomach. He ignored the shouts of the guardsmen at the alley mouth, instead drawing on their collective fear. 
He was the bogeyman to much of the city's police. The scary story they told the new recruits. He took that fear, wrapped it around the voices he'd had in his head for weeks, ever since that damn trip to the mountains, and channeled it through his body. They wanted a bogeyman. He would give them one. He pushed the channel outward and felt it take hold. His body began to change, growing impossibly big, muscles expanding at a terrifying rate. He felt the sting of the gilt bullets as a few wild shots found their marks. His shirt, unable to contain his expanding physique, shredded as he grew, until it hung in tattered strips from his shoulders. There, that's better. He chomped down on the cigar in his mouth, settled the top hat, now ridiculously small on his oversized head, and glared at them. Who's first? The guardsmen fell back, terror gripping their hearts. Then the massive, hulking shape of a guild peacekeeper stepped into the alleyway, its limbs tearing chunks of masonry from the walls on either side. Seamus grinned, smacking fist into open palm. Yeah, you'll do, beastie. He cast a glance back at the constable now lying prone on the cobblestones. Won't be but a minute, love he said, and then charged the construct with a roar. Nicodem, Avatar of Decay The Abandoned Observatory, Moments Before the Event The observatory exploded behind Nicodem, sending timber and stone flying around him as he escaped out a secret back exit. Small fragments struck him like shrapnel, and he pulled the dark leather coat across his face to shield his flesh from the blast. It proved ineffectual, as shards tore through the cloth and lacerated his face and shoulder. A larger stone struck his mechanical leg, bending the articulating piston, and steam whistled out of the hydraulic shaft as it depressurized, dropping him to the ground. He turned in his fall to see another large block propelling towards him, and he winced instinctively as time slowed to a crawl. He saw more than felt the bones of his chest crushed not merely broken, but splintered into minute fragments which tore through and turned Logans, even as they were smashed to paste. But at the same moment his mind was also infused with an otherworldly power he had never experienced or imagined. His body fell lifelessly to the ground, but he refused to rest. His broken body was of no further use to him. His will lashed out in frustration, and he felt the rotting dead deep beneath the packed soil. He could always feel corpses at the fringe of his mind wherever he walked, but this was different. He called to them effortlessly, promising them life, the ability to walk again. He pulled them from the earth and they clamored to him. These were much older than he should be able to control, having spent too long detached from their souls. But he somehow was able to give them his will, and they rose. The zombie horde collected him from the wreckage of the observatory, bearing him aloft on a palanquin. His body twisted and turned, animated even in death by his unending command. He surveyed the army risen to obey his command. They cheered for him and vowed eternal allegiance. Thousands came, desperate to find him. 
They were more than the mindless creatures he had been capable of creating. These were superior undead. Infused by the loose memories of the etheric spirits that imbued them with new life. The event passed, and the voices clamoring around him diminished. He gasped, drawing air into his broken lungs. Below him, dozens of zombies, actual expressions of joy and hate on their faces, slowly slipped into a dull stupor as they became mindless once more. They lost their will and crumbled to dust dropping him slowly to the ground as they fell. He sat up with a sigh, examining himself quickly. Had his vision been dream or reality? He was surprised to find his wounds were gone if he ever had any. They might have been nothing more than a fleeting glimpse of his future, of him with the four of a great undead army that enthusiastically followed his every whim. Nicodem could not be certain how he knew, but what had transpired was far more than any vision. He would command the very fabric of death, and the legions buried beneath Malifaux's hard ground would do his bidding. They had no choice. Arcanists. Colette, Avatar of Deception. Near the Star Theatre, three weeks after the event. Sally screamed, and Colette couldn't really blame her. It wasn't every day one of her chorus line girls came face to face with an animated burlap bag stuffed with rotting body parts trying to kill her. Sally disappeared in sections, as if she'd been painted on a sheet of paper that just folded itself up into nothing. The nothingness unfolded, and there was Colette with one flirtatious eyebrow raised in a silent ta-da. Sally's interrupted scream resumed from the other side of the courtyard, where Colette had been standing moments before. You like that? Colette said, mentally bleaching herself for flirting with a diseased sack. You'll love this. A confetti of playing cards burst from her outstretched hands, shredding the nightmare creature into a spray of green and purple carrion. One of the playing cards flew back into Colette's palm. She passed a hand over it and there was a freshly glowing soul stone. Money in the teal. She ducked as Monday, one of her mannequins, whizzed past chased by a tiny imp with a big hat. The yard had gone from quiet rendezvous to a frantic affray of embattled showgirls and nightmare entities without a moment's notice. Sally, Colette shouted. Scream like that and Sweeney Todd and I'll put you center stage, girl. Lovely vocal work. Now shoot something. Cassandra, stop playing with that oversized teddy bear and help out Iris and Delia. But there was no getting away from it. The ambush was turning against her. More and more of the creatures were seething out of the drain covers or oozing out the walls. Her girls were in serious danger. Your new trick, Cassandra shouted, pirouetting away from the ten-foot bear and hacking one of the imps in half before it could reach Iris. I think it's ready for an audience, dearest. It took only a moment. Colette had spent hours learning to control the energies needed. But was not the whole world a stage, and every day the performance of a lifetime? Cassandra was about to hack again at the ten-foot teddy bear, when Colette embedded three glowing playing cards deep in its skull. When Colette shredded a boiling nightmare of whispering insanity with a rainbow stream of magic. When Colette swatted back a spell at one of the stitched together, and it slopped in a putrid puddle on the cobbles. 
In moments, the showgirl stood alone and victorious as the remaining horrors retreated. Colette, Colette, and Colette gathered, while the others looked on in mute astonishment. I had no idea how good that hat makes me look, the first Colette said. I'll put you center stage any day, replied another. Wouldn't you just, winked the third. Ahem, said Cassandra, arms folded and frowning. When you're quite finished, darling. The middle Colette took a bow, and like a mirror folding, the two on either side vanished. She wiggled her eyebrows and then sighed. Monday, Monday they're all gone. That's a wall. Will someone put Monday's head back on? Marcus, Avatar of Instinct. Somewhere in the Badlands, three months after the event. The purple wave had struck him as he pounced upon the three-spiked gazelle explosively releasing all of the latent bestial potentials stored within him. He became stronger than any man or animal. Faster, too. The event didn't simply unlock the infused life force of the animals he'd integrated within himself. It changed him. Physically. Mentally. He was the primal beasts he admired, but he was not able to maintain it. He had no sooner completed his transformation and comprehended the vast depth of potential it suggested than it dwindled away as quickly as it had come. That was months ago. Here are the stones you wanted, Miranda said from behind him. She tossed the sack upon his lap as he meditated and continued to their makeshift camp. He closed his eyes once more. Soul stones were not the answer he now understood. The quiet voices of the spirits released by the event danced in and out of his mind like a dream upon waking. It was like a cat hunting dust motes while the mouse played at its feet. Still, he caught one wispy fragment, then another. Long and tedious was the process. Unlike the deliberate control of the hunt, he had to catch the ethereal strands by instinct, by focusing upon himself rather than the object of the hunt. Then, nearly entranced, his instincts took a radical turn, twisting the numerous strands he'd collected and weaving them throughout the minute fibers of his body, merging the very substance of his being with the animal essences he'd experimentally blended with his own body. His chest heaved up and outward as the muscles thickened and bulged. His jaws cracked painfully, reshaping into a wide muzzle lined with long teeth and jutting fangs. A rack of horns broke through his skull and twisted up into points. The life force of various animal stocks commingled with his own on an elemental level even he could not comprehend. He howled in pain as bones cracked audibly and his lower torso elongated into the powerful feline body of a Cerberus. All four wide paws dug into the soil to steady his shaking body as he metamorphosed. His shoulder blades erupted through the fur along his back growing and stretching into wide, bat-like wings. Even more painfully, the tail of a Cerberus became a venomous viper, writhing in confusion and anger behind him. The transformation complete, he bent forward at the waist as far as his new form would permit as he gasped for air. He waited for the influx of power to leave him in a rush as it had three months ago, waited to be reduced to mere human once again. This time, the power did not desert him. He was mastering his control over this manifestation. There he stood, 
defiant and thrilled with power and vitality unimagined. His triumphant howl echoed through the forest. Ramos, avatar of invention. Hollow Marsh Mines, two weeks after the event. Away from the miners' prying eyes, Victor Ramos took stock of his situation. Recent events had forced him to reevaluate his plans, especially how the fall of the Red Cage could tip the balance of power he had carefully manipulated and put the Arcanists at risk. Plots within schemes within machinations, he mused with a chuckle. Just another day in Malifaux. The situation with Hoffman and the Guild could wait. Instead, he centered himself, focusing on the faint whispers in the back of his mind. They were so insistent and forceful during the event that he had all but succumbed to them, his mind lost in the whirlpool they created. Over time, he had learned how to suppress them, push them aside and focus on the matters at hand. He also suspected that as time went along, distancing him from the event, they would fade naturally, perhaps stop altogether. He had to listen to their message before that happened. He released the voices, and they exploded in his mind, thousands demanding his attention. The voices whispered to him, sharing arcane secrets that had been lost for centuries. The secrets would have shattered a lesser man's psyche, but Ramos was not a lesser man. He endured and listened to what they had to say. Armed with this new knowledge, Ramos pushed the voices back into their sequester once again and focused. He focused on progress, on innovation, on schematics for half-imagined constructs he had yet to complete. Mysteries their whispers gave him the answers to. The puzzle pieces clicked together, and he willed the concepts into reality. Four metallic, spidery limbs appeared, punching through the sides of his coat, lifting him aloft. With his arms extended in front of him, crackling electricity danced across his living fingers and up his forearm, arcing to his clockwork limb and then dancing back and forth between the meat and machine that was Victor Ramos. Amazing, he whispered as the arcing light reflected on his glasses. Moments later, the surge of energy dissipated, and he settled to the ground, slowly capturing his breath. Manifesting the power took quite a bit of strength, but with each attempt it became a bit easier. He wondered if the event had imparted this expanded knowledge on others, if the guild could comprehend the depth of what gifts it had left in its wake. Before he could consider this any further, the sounds of an argument brewing outside the office reached him. He could make out Johann's voice and the slow rumble of the miners upset about something. Sighing. He shrugged out of the damaged coat, and went outside to see what had created the disturbance. There would be time for more experimenting later. Rasputina, Avatar of Famine Somewhere in the eastern mountains, five months after the event. Rasputina knelt in the ice and snow just outside the temple entrance. Her skirt was cut above her knees, leaving her skin exposed to the cold that would have frozen any ordinary person. She didn't notice. Icy blue veins were clearly visible in winding parts up her chest and neck just below the skin. They pulsed a bright luminescent blue, pumping the frozen blue blood throughout her cold body, glowing in the dark night. 
the pale winter sun had set some long hours before, and the twin moons could not break through the dense clouds amassed above her. She meditated in the darkness, silence save the whistling wind, blowing her cape to her side. Even the two silent ones behind her remained motionless and silent in body as well as speech. The world had changed since her arrival in Malifaux. The event flooded the world with unprecedented spiritual power. Her body remained famished, thirsty, yet she refused to eat. It made it easier to consume the gossamer fragments of that loosened power, and she drew the energy within her ravenously. Her blue veins throbbed brighter and quicker as her anticipation rose. Overlooking the steep descent aside the mountain, she cast out her will, gathering the cold about her like a cloak of frost. It settled on her chest and shoulders first, then gathered across the rest of her body, jagged shards tearing through the leather and fabric with ease. Ice erupted from the rocks and snow beneath her as powerful long legs and icy arms grew from the cold sheath surrounding her. Where she had stood moments before, a towering creature of ice now stood. Encased at its heart, Rasputina controlled its movements as if they were her own. She stood upon the ledge and surveyed the sheer drop to a narrow trail below. She turned her new form to look back to the cave that led to December's temple, and sneered. Under her silent command, the icy sheath moved in fluid grace. Where its wide feet struck the ground, it tore the leg away below the bend of a knee, leaving behind a jagged block of ice. It stepped forward and ice burst forth from the ground to meet it, forming a full leg once again. At its every move, ice splintered and fell in dagger-like shards. The cracking of the thick ice echoed across the mountainside at each shifting of its form, only to freeze together once more as the wind descended upon it as if desperate to reach Rasputina cradled within its chest. Her new body struck the side of the mountain with a resounding crash as Rasputina willed it to descend. The sheer face could not provide a trail for it to follow, and it slid across the inhospitable surface like an avalanche, crashing and breaking along the way. Snow and ice tumbled around her. As rock tore blocks of ice away, the tumbling snow around her was drawn into the voids hammered into her body, rebuilding her as she quickly traversed the dangerous slope, fearing nothing in the dark. She had been brought to Malifaux as a criminal for actions she could not fully recall. But crimes had been committed against her, and those transgressions needed atonement. She hungered for it. snippets after this. Treasure hunters from the Malifaux Exploration Society have stumbled upon what is being tipped as the find of the year. Upon a trip to the quarantine zone, 
a group led by famed explorer Sir Arthur Mumbles discovered what was described by a representative from the society as quite bloody strange, actually, old chap. What Sir Mumbles and team were hunting for in that dreaded area of the city, the representative did not say. What they did find was a disused tomb, and after prying open the doors, Sir Mumbles led the hunting party downstairs. An official report about the excursion said the tunnels were old, many centuries old. The stairs opened up into a large stone room. It was damp and smelled faintly of fish or sweat. In the centre of the room was a stone table and stone seats. These were reportedly a few sizes too large for even the biggest person in the party. What was most peculiar was what was on the table. Our intrepid explorers found miniaturised stone houses, stone walls and stone trees arranged into a rough township. Around these houses, tiny stone figures were found. Any detail was worn away due to the passing of time. Completing this bizarre scene were some sticks with markings cut into the surfaces at regular intervals and stone cubes. Sir Mumbles later confirmed his party returned back to the Exploration Society's hunting lodge without his original quarry, but with one of the figures. I'm sure this won't lead to anything horrific happening at all. Stay with me now. Do keep up. More short stories happening now. Neverborn, The Dreamer, Avatar of Imagination, Gutter Street, one month after the event. The veil between reality and fantasy parted, slowly opening like a theatre curtain drawing out the show's start for an enraptured audience. Two horrible claws reached out, gripped the sides of the tear and pushed wider, the void swirling with motes of impossible colours. Late-night revellers, heading home after one too many libations, halted and watched the spectacle with growing dread. They held a collective breath as something exited the tear, wondering what fresh horror had come to Malifaux. Hearts beat like trapped birds within their chests, as first one and then another bedpost appeared. Bedposts? Breaths held in terror gave way to nervous laughter as the length of a child's bed exited the tear bedclothes in disarray. Everyone wondered who the trickster was. Where was this master illusionist hiding? Then the point of a wooden toy sword exited. The weapon held on charge by a little boy standing with all the seriousness of a general leading his troops. It was all too much. The gathering crowd erupted with good-natured mirth. The dreamer surveyed his playthings. They were laughing at him. This simply would not do. They should have been bowing to him, or at the very least silent. No, this would not do at all. Chompy! Laughter turned to screams of terror 
as a second body exited the tear. It was no child at play in its bed. It was a thing of nightmares, of the deepest terrors that haunt sleeping men. It belonged to the claws pushing the tear open. A second pair of limbs carrying the boy's bed before it like some noble's litter. Its bony ridged head reared back, bellowing a challenge which carried far more weight than the boy's. That's better, the dreamer grinned. Now, what shall we play this evening? Pirates? No, he was bored of pirates. Cops and robbers or knights and dragon? No. His plaything seemed to be making the choice for him, fleeing the terrible duo as the tear mended itself behind them with a pop. Hide and go seek! What an excellent idea! They hadn't played that for oh so long. Chompy would love it! The boy thought about how for months his nighttime companion couldn't play with him like he wanted to. Neither of them could be in the same place at the same time. But then that strange night, when the wall of purple had danced so merrily through him, he had heard the voices of a thousand thousand playmates in his head, and they told both of them such secrets. Secrets which included how to... What did they call it? Crossover... Simultaneously? After that, every night since had been a playtime he would never have dreamed possible. It didn't matter where they were or who was around. He and Chompy always found playmates to participate in his favorite games. Even if they weren't in the best place for hide-and-seek, or playing pirates and making the mutineers walk the plank, he could just change the dream with a wave of his toy sword. With just the thought, he could create enough hiding places or stretch how far down the dirty mutineers would fall after their trip down the plank. It was great. A few of tonight's playmates looked to be cheating, trying to run off and hide where he and Chompy couldn't find them. Not fair. He waved the toy sword high, pointed it in their direction and shouted, Lord Chompy Bits, charge! Lilith, avatar of nature's malevolence. Somewhere deep within the knotwoods, moments before the event. The Ortegas were not the only group of intrepid men and women that took up arms against the indigenous Neverborn threatening the good people of Malifaux. Led by an exorcist, operating slightly beyond sanctioned regulation, the small group of men hunting Nephilim deep in the Knotwoods did not look like much. Yet they were outdoorsmen and battle-hardened. She be here, Barnabas Shire, the exorcist, said with lips drawn and a perpetual scowl. Mukaja, called Cage by the others, sat the heavy sack upon the dry forest floor. Blood from the numerous severed Nephilim heads it contained painted the burlap a glistening black. He cocked the colt in one hand and drew his narrow sword. He smiled. Behind him, Bartholomew Big Bart Lichman was neither so sure nor cocky. How you know, Barnabas? he asked. This ain't a spirit. Ain't a zombie, neither. The exorcist did not turn to face the doubter. His voice was low and even as he said, No, this is not my normal prey, but I know she's here. He studied the trees and thorny brush before him. He couldn't see her, but knew she was there. Lilith stared right back at him through the dense foliage, regaining her strength, 
They had doggedly pursued her the previous day and all through the night. They never rested. She could hold her own against four at the least. Seven of their number remained, and the loss of their comrades had no visible impact upon these men. They had left them unceremoniously in the dirt as they pursued her trail. It was oddly abnormal for a human. She disliked their unpredictability. Now she was near the coven, yet not close enough to get reinforcements. If any of these men discovered it and survived, well, the forest might be overrun by guild hunters. Sword in hand, she lunged forward and the flora moved aside at her passage as if deferring to her authority over the land itself. Her plan was to repeat the previous tactic of picking off one or two before disappearing into the brush to strike again later. It would work again, unless they overwhelmed her. This was a possibility she hardly acknowledged. As she leapt forward, however, crackling purple energy enveloped them all, and they gasped, clutching their heads. Barnabas dropped his crossbow and sharply inhaled as the sinews along his neck went taut. Lilith was struck painfully and her chest heaved. Her sword fell from her hand and she clutched her arms tightly around herself. Cage somehow quickly shook off the strange shock of the event that passed through everyone. He aimed and fired at the incapacitated Lilith in the same quick movement. As he squeezed the trigger, the vines and brush surrounding Lilith reached out, wrapping themselves around her torso and arms. She was yanked back so quickly the brush shook and the bullet seemed to pass through only leaves. She was gone. Barnabas took longer than the others to right himself. The pain was severe. He staggered away from the others in confusion. As his eyes cleared and he looked back, he saw a woman, beautiful and fierce, erupt from the foliage beside the men. His eyes must have been deceiving him still, for he thought she did not leap from behind the bushes, but from within them. As she slashed through the side of one man with long claws of thorn, she would disappear back into the forest, melding with the trunks only to leap out of another tree many yards away. It was Bedlam. She was everywhere and nowhere. The forest, a living thing under her command. He ran then, still dazed from the pain of the events before Lilith could find him. He thought he had eluded her too until she found him cowering beneath a clump of ferns half a mile away, and gave him to the forest. Pandora, Avatar of Insanity Anderson Street, two weeks after the event The sun had fallen behind the row of buildings silhouetted in the west, and people withdrew to their homes to secure themselves against the darker shadows that slint in the night. So when a cry rose from the twisting alleys several blocks away, shouting, she went this way, toward Anderson Street, breaking the evening silence. Trepid eyes peeked around barely parted drapes and shutters. Pandora rounded the corner, breathing heavily, and ran as fast as she could with her dark box tight against her side. Hiding behind a shipping crate, she struggled to catch her breath. The mob came around the corner, the orange glow of their torches stretching beyond her hiding place. She's down there, one said. Go check it out, Nigel. Like hell, she's a witch. We go together. A third muttered, Y'all better be telling the truth. I sold my britches once over your stories of this girl. You'll know when you see her. Don't hesitate, but be ready. She can twist your thoughts against you, remember? I seen what she did to poor Ned. 
They approached cautiously. Their words were filled with hatred. She had no remaining soul stones, and she was exhausted and wounded from their initial beating and her narrow escape. The alley was blocked to her right, offering no escape. The gossamer voices fluttered along the edge of her mind, but she dismissed them as the distracting voices of the woes that whispered to her incessantly. These voices were different, she realized after a moment. Not long after the event, she learned how to embrace the tiny spark of that ethereal energy that tickled her spine. Once before, during the event, she had drawn in hundreds, embracing them. They changed her, allowed her to look into the box and command what was there. Well, looky here, a voice above her said as its shadow crossed over her hiding place, breaking her concentration. Don't look so tough after all. Gonna cry, little witch? Another member of the mob dragged her to her feet and spun her to face the others. They held weapons, knives and torches. They meant to kill her. Too tired to fight or run, the mob may have succeeded with whatever it had in store for Pandora, if not for Nigel's next action. No longer afraid of the seemingly weak young girl before him, he backhanded the box she carried out of her arms. It struck the ground with the resounding ring of a brass gong, the top open to the sky. Gaseous tendrils enveloped Pandora's legs, darkening as they lifted her into the air. Each member of the mob then realized the girl they'd persecuted was not the one dying tonight. They were. Her head thrust back, and brilliant energy erupted from her wide eyes. The small mob, bent on killing her moments ago, now stared only at the box. Their minds were filled with nightmarish visions of suffering, their own suffering. Some went mad, clawing at their own eyes. Others wept at the base inhumanity the box showed them. Still others refused to accept what they saw, thinking the gift of deception was one of the girl's tricks. Some refused to accept it, that is, until thick tentacles reached out from the small box, wrapping tightly around them. Then they knew the awful truth, and the screaming truly began. Those few smart enough to turn tail and run as the box hit the ground slid to a stop, as a lithe young woman detached herself from the shadows. The mob members froze, caught between the woman's brazen saunter and the horrible sounds behind them. Uh, uh, uh. Where do you think you're going? We haven't had time to play yet, Candy hissed at them as something sharp filled her hands. Zoraida, avatar of fate. Somewhere in the bayou, four months after the event. Twigs and leaves cracked beneath her bare feet, gnarled and calloused to the point where she could not feel the layer of frost covering the bayou. The sun would soon burn it off and the lizards, amphibians, and other bio-animals startled by the anomaly would shake off their instinctual terror and soon forget it ever occurred. But Zoraida would not. It was no freak occurrence. December's influence continued to mount. The death of his physical body at Kythera was just the beginning. The etheric tear caused by the falling cage only accelerated the coming end. All of the tyrants now stirred. 
If any were to ascend, it would mean the end of their world. She felt responsible for the breach, for her part in twisting Malifaux's fates and destiny. Those two cosmic forces did not react well to manipulation, and were now recoiling and lashing back in punishment. They could not unravel the knot they had made, humans and never-born alike, reweaving the strands of fate as they liked. Standing in the cool muck that rose above her ankles, Zoraida concentrated on the throbbing pulse of life that beat beneath her. Most of Malifaux had been laid barren in that war so long ago, but the bayou still throbbed with life. She could hear whispered voices carried on the wind, seeking refuge against the pain and confusion of their displacement. She wanted to take them in, absorb and bind them to her own spirituality like a soul stone. They were so frail, but they were everywhere. How could she gather so many? She had grown old, far beyond nature's intention, and set in her ways. When I was young, first escaping to the bayou, she thought, I had the youthful optimism and elasticity of spirit to solve this. That thought was a revelation. She drew in a tenuous ribbon of the residual energy and pressed it down deep against her own life force. Where the power should have been contained within a soul stone, or forced to power a spell as she would normally do with the ether, this spiritual energy was different. It did not manipulate external forces. Instead, the energy spilling out of the ether manipulated an individual. She drew in more and more of the tenuous wisps floating along the edge of her perception. Needing the flexibility and vitality of youth, her body slowly straightened, losing the haggard bent posture of age. Her skin softened and grew taut, stretching away wrinkles as warm color returned. Muscles in her thighs, chest, and arms grew firm and strong as raven black returned to her hair, washing away the white in a wave. She released the leftover energy she had absorbed, letting it levitate her into the air as it slowly dissipated. Zoraida floated above the bayou, glowing with the vitality of youth. She alone understood what had to be done and now knew how to do it. But it would require the sacrifice of many. It was a price she could accept. Outcasts. Hamlin. Avatar of Contagion. Throughout the city. Five months after the event. The unholy union of Hamlin the Piper and the sinister tyrant referred to only as the plagued, came to a sudden and violent end at the hand of that girl's vengeful spirit unleashed upon him. His body had been shattered, obliterated against a wall, scattering the carrion and skittering creatures writhing within him across the floor of the observatory, just as he finished the ritual that would unlock all the power necessary for his final ascension. With that dissolution of his form, came an equally dissipated awareness and will, as the creatures that comprised him crawled away. Still, he was a tyrant, and that was no small thing. He fought to call them together again, to recreate himself. The device was still salvageable, and with the release of the fire tyrant, a hole had been made into the ether. He had little time, but his will was severe, and stronger than any other might imagine. He should have been lost. 
They had thought that too. The Neverborn. When they sealed him in that prison in the necropolis. Even though his body had exploded with the observatory. Nothing was more enduring than a virus and the creatures that carried it. Some of the insects escaped the fiery turmoil, worming beneath the timber and rubble. Just a few. But they carried not only the disease of the plague, but his very will. It should have taken years, centuries, or even eons as it had before. The event had come and gone, and the device that would open the gateway into the ether allowing him to ascend and dominate that world saturated in magical energy, was gone with it. His body was gone. His will was greatly reduced. His mind, too, was nearly broken. But he was angry. Angry beyond measure. Even more than when the Neverborn broke and confined him centuries earlier. Slowly he spread the original contagion in those few surviving dark insects to others of their kind, calling more and more from the sewers once again, until there were enough to hold him again. With each new crawling bug added to the reconvened mass, his awareness grew as well, until he was ready to walk again. He pulled them together within the flesh of a freshly fallen human victim of their deadly disease. They rebuilt that flesh to the more comfortable and familiar body of Hamlin, the man who first released him. It took months. The event was gone. But he could feel the prickling energy that still danced about this world from the inundation of the wave. It was nothing for him to take bit after bit of that energy within him, gorging upon it desperately. Now, he growled, a centipede crawling out of his drooling lips. Now they will pay. Water dripped upon him from a sewer grate above, and he looked up at the light spilling down. The insignificant creatures that did his bidding would not be considered insignificant for much longer. He would unleash upon them a contagion that would destroy them all. Leviticus, Avatar of Entropy, deep within the bayou, five months after the event. Weeks had passed. He and Zoraida had spent literally every waking moment. Hers, his spirit form, did not need sleep. Learning how to put their newfound talents to use. They had no tyrants to fight. No way to directly test their knowledge except to spar against each other. Already today they'd spent hours manipulating magic, probing each other's weaknesses and experimenting with new spells. It was taking its toll. Zoraida broke off her current assault, unable to focus on the task at hand. Again. He encouraged Zoraida as she sat down on a root, exhaustion drawn across her face. In a moment. I may be younger now, but my endurance is not limitless, she gasped. Leviticus could hear a note of jealousy in her voice. Very well. While he waited for her to recover... He strode around the small clearing they'd chosen for today's work. Nebaiu's beauty had never stirred him in the way it did Zoraida. All he saw was miles and miles of tangled plants and murky water. What an awful place. His musings on the subject were interrupted by a blinding pain that washed through his disembodied spirit. 
Not again, he gasped. He knew better than to fight against it, instead focusing in an effort to draw out the vision it heralded. The first two times this occurred, he had misunderstood their purpose. But since then he had witnessed four visions, each longer and more involved than the last. He saw himself and the four riders rushing across the hard pan toward an unseen destination. He was at the fore of the group, his spirit made manifest, riding a powerful ghostly steed, something more and less than real. He recognized three of the four riders as the same beings he'd encountered under the hanging tree. The fourth was new to the dream. Clearly a female, her long hair swept back by the wind, she wielded a spear, which she leveled toward their invisible foe as a jousting knight would his lance. Her horse, unlike his spectral mount, was a blending of meat and machine, but more machine than horse, unlike the decaying creatures ridden by the hooded rider and dead rider. What he could only assume were explosions began to pepper the hard pan around the imposing group. But they rode through it, oblivious to the danger. He watched as at least one explosion erupted in a bloom of dirt and flame directly below the horse. He cringed mentally, and then was amazed to see himself still riding, completely unscathed by the attack. Then he shouted orders to the four riders, and they fanned out as they came alongside him. The frequency of the explosions and sounds of gunfire intensified as each of them encouraged their mounts to faster speeds. They were at the enemy's line, but Leviticus could still not make out just what this enemy was. It was then that the pain vacated him in a rush, taking with it the vision just as the enemy was coming into view. The experience left him drained of energy as the previous ones had. The rider was watching him from her perch. Another vision? Yes, he replied. He summarized what he had seen for her, leaving no detail out of the retelling. She listened. But once he had finished, she had a single question for him. But where was I? Summer and Peaches, Avatars of Indulgence Somewhere in the bayou, three weeks after the event. Summer Teeth was in a downright sour mood. No amount of piglet and young and kicking seemed to lift his spirits, and even his pet skeeters gave Jones a wide berth. Sensing he had something downright powerful on his mind. He certainly did, and that was the trouble. Ever since the purple light show had danced around him, no, through him, and the voices with the big words that filled his head, he could do nothing else but think. Think about the bayou, about what he would do if it was suddenly gone, about what would his kin do to survive about how he could stop what was coming, and why wouldn't he embrace the gifts the voices had given him. He hated thinking too much. It made the big hat shrink and his head hurt. Sighing, he rubbed and punched at his temples with gloved fists, trying to reject the thought swimming in his green head. Sitting down by the water's edge, he was sure none of the other gremlins could see his distress. He hoped so, 
The last time he had been vulnerable was that day while he stood frozen with his head cocked, listening to the purple voices. One of his boys had tried to grab the big hat off his head if a gremlin could believe it. His big hat, while he was wearing it. The poor gremlin's arm had paused as it reached for the big hat, eyes wide with surprise that Summer was himself again. Shooting Clem was a damn shame. But without a big hat, he couldn't be much of a boss. What else could he do? Damn heavy the big hat had become. It was all a very heavy weight on his mind. His thoughts turned to snorting and the clank and jangle of metal on metal at his shoulder. A massive shadow fell across him, blotting out his own. He looked over his shoulder, and there she stood, loyal as a mangy dog and twice as mean. Peaches, he cooed as he walked over to the sow's massive bulk. The still, balanced on her back, gurgled merrily at his arrival. He poured a healthy slug into a beaten tin cup and knocked it back in one gulp, eyes tearing as the fire tore down his throat and lit the furnace in his belly. The voices quieted down some, and the urge to think wasn't quite as pressing on his brain. Girl, you always know the right thing to say. A few more sips and I'll be right as rain. Gents, I's done some heavy thinking. Somer sat astride Peaches, a tin cup and its sloshing contents in one hand, a half-eaten leg of some sort of bayou critter in the other, as he shouted at the gremlins within earshot. She had carried him back from the water's edge. His sense of balance lost somewhere between cupfuls five and six of the shine. Where he had acquired a bucket of food was a mystery. It's been a good long time since we've gone on a hoot and holler. I'm thinking it's time we did. Pay them humans some visits like they've been paying us. What do you say? Hey, boys. Just have the best traveling shindig the buyers ever seen. Excited murmurs rolled through the growing crowd at the prospect of a good old-fashioned traveling ruckus. Soma thought that if the world was going to end, he and his kin might as well go out celebrating like there was no tomorrow, since there would quite possibly be none. He took another swig from the tin cup and grinned like a fool. Now who wants a drink? The whoops, hollers, and crack of boomsticks shot into the sky were his answer. Victoria's Avatars of Slaughter Ten miles northeast of Ridley Station during the event. A wall of crackling purple energy washed across Victoria as she and her crew fought against the fleeing group of escaped prisoners they'd finally caught up with, freezing her in place. Her twin gasped in agony as a wave passed through her. Dual swords stopped in mid-strike. The convict before her blinked in astonishment as the crackling energy prickled his skin and temporarily blinded him. It took a moment for him to shake off the stunned confusion, thanking his luck the swords had halted their descent. His assailant, however, shook in pain, gasping and gurgling. Chuckling, he raised his hand to strike her, ignoring the departure of the strange wall of energy moving across the countryside. 
A ronin knocked into him from the side before he could drive his knife into the swordmistress, and the two fought away from her as she fell, writhing in pain upon the rocky ground. The other Victoria, frozen in place with her pistol outstretched before her, suffered none of the torturous agony incapacitating her sibling in spirit. Her target didn't care why she didn't fire upon him, and lunged at her as well. She saw the assault coming as if slowed, moving through a pool of molasses, yet she could not move to either dodge or deflect the coming blow. Another of their ronin prodigies slashed into his side, and they tumbled away as Victoria looked on, unmoving in the grip of the wave's power. But the remaining convicts saw Victoria's strange hesitation, and turned from running away madly to take on the two ronin, dispatching them quickly. The men ascended the hill together toward the bounty hunter and her twin, intending to kill the two women with ease. As the lead man stepped near them, he stopped dead in his tracks. The sword held loosely in Victoria's left hand suddenly rang out like a hammer striking an anvil. The convicts recoiled in pain, clutching their ears until the sound subsided to a low hum. Victoria rose slowly behind her gun-wielding sibling, her twin swords elongating and curving like the venomous fangs of a razor spine. Both women glared at the man, eyes burning with a terrifying bloodlust. What disturbed the men most was the single humming Masamune. It elongated before their eyes, curving wickedly and widening as it grew. A creature's head formed in the metal at the base of the blade. Its eyes blinked open to stare at the convicts, while its long metallic tongue, which spread up along the blade, seemed to absorb the blood spattered on the metal. The sword hummed thrillingly, as if excited about the bloodletting to come. The Victorias looked upon the men as beasts for their slaughter, willed to kill by the Masamune sword's magic. They broke into smiles that chilled each man to his soul and charged the group. It was the last thing any of the men saw before a blur of whirling death descended upon them. regular full-length tales next time. I'm going to leave you with a snippet of news. Information has reached the Breachside Broadcast Studios of increased gang violence in and around the Little Kingdom this week. Little Kingdom is the predominant eastern community in Malifaux, housing citizens from all around the Three Kingdoms. The silent majority of people living there are peaceful, of course, but bodies wearing oriental masks have appeared in plain sight. Just one of the bodies uttered a few words before shuffling off this mortal coil. They said three words. The thirsty glass. Authorities are appealing to people living in that area to come forward with anything they may have relating to this recent rise in violent events. The Guild believes the criminal elements of the MNSU may be involved. It appears that Little Kingdom, for now, our world in chaos. Now it is time for me to say adieu and stay safe out there listeners because bad things happen. <laughs>